I think we will get started, right? Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. I would like to welcome everybody who is attending this live session and those who will be watching the recording of this YouTube. We continue our live sessions about project management books. And this is my pleasure to host today a person, Sensei of Fundraising. My name is Leila Machaidze. I am project management professional and I'm in project management for more than 24 years. Uh, out of which 15 is on managerial positions. I have customers from all over the world and I'm really passionate about anything related to project management, leadership. And if you want to learn more about me, please visit my website and my social me media network. I post uh, tips and tricks which can be beneficial to you there. Couple of words about today's logistics. Today's session in overall will take about one hour. Uh, Sabi will give us quick presentation about his vision about fundraising, and then we will have a Q&A session. Uh, please feel free to post your questions in the chat section because we will be addressing them. So, uh, and uh, the questions I think will be mainly from fundraising, from NGOs, from educational and other sectors. Um, Sagi. Sagi has, uh, uh, Sagi is the president of Harvard Club of Israel, and he has fourth degree in karate, and he's international fundraising consultant and coach. This is why he's called Sensei of Fundraising. I'm really happy to have you here on this session. Uh, Sagi, this is my pleasure to host you on this uh, live. Shalom, everybody. It's a great honor to be in your company, even though on Zoom. And let me begin with a confession that I've never visited your country. I think I'm the only one in my neighborhood who hasn't been to your country. Everybody go, everybody excited coming back, everybody rave about Georgia. So maybe, God, God knows, this will be a beginning of a relationship that will bring me to your country. So it's an honor to be here with you and share with you some insights I learned over the course of over 20 years now about fundraising, about the art of giving, the art of asking for money, about the art of doing good by bringing other people to contribute their resources to do good. So I'll, I'll briefly introduce myself and my, the background, including the book background, and then we can open it for free discussion. Please feel free to ask me everything and anything uh, during this conversation. So I, I was born in Israel, I grew up in the kibbutz. Some of you might know what it is. It's a unique way of living uh, to Israel. And uh, found myself at Harvard University in the age of 28 after military service as a, as a officer. I was a captain in the IDF. I have four children now. One of them is in medical school. Two of them are serving the country and a fourth is still a high schooler. And the first time I was exposed to what fundraising is, I did not know the term fundraising. And here how it connected to karate, to martial arts, and to making dreams come true. So I was doing my undergraduate degree in Haifa University. I live in the northern part of Israel. By the way, anyone has been to our country? Please raise your hand. One, one, okay. Some of you, I can't see the faces, so I'll take it as maybe. But uh, I live in about 10 minutes away from Nazareth. Uh, those of you who knows Nazareth, I assume. And uh, so I was in the undergraduate degree doing Middle East studies. And uh, I just received my black belt in Shorokan Karate. And then I had a dream, actually two dreams. One dream was to go to Harvard University, which, you know, I heard so many things about it, but it was like going to the moon as far as from a kibbutz to a university in America. And the second dream was to teach karate to Bedouin, which is a nomad Arabs, who lived not too far from where I am, had no after-school activity. It was like an unknown, unrecognized village of huts of really poor conditions. And 
I said they should have the chance to learn martial arts. So I heard about a foundation that supports these kind of activities. I wrote to them. I said, I have a dream to teach karate to young Bedouins, and, but I don't have funding in order to bring them to the gym, to the sports center. And the, found, the foundation director told me, Sagi, if you happen to be in New York, come talk to us. Now, you guys don't know me uh, too well, but uh, I'm a firm believer that if they close the door, go through the window. And if they close the window, go through the roof. And if they close the roof, go come from the sewage. So when they tell somebody like me, come if you can, I came. I showed up in New York and I shared my dream. And uh, I told the foundation director in America, my English was medium then, let me explain to you, let me demonstrate to you what's between martial arts and creating coexistent relationship between Jews and Arabs in the land of Israel. And I cannot demonstrate it here on Zoom, but I'll just give you the punchline, which is literally a punchline. I went like that hey! to hell and told her that building trust is a, a, a key condition to bringing enemy parties together. And she freaked out. She couldn't talk for about two minutes. And then she said, we'll get back to you. And two, two weeks later, I was already back home in Israel. I got a letter. We decided to fund your amazing program with $5,000 gift, a grant. And that was the beginning of my fundraising tree. $5,000 in today's terms is a little gift. I, you know, now I raise millions. But that was the first time, the most memorable one. And that started my career in fundraising and also connecting the words. I used karate and other discipline along the way. And also, in a way, it proved to me that when you come with passion, when you come with belief, when you come with determination that what you do is good, and you're bringing people to join a really, really true good cause, Nothing can stop you. And one thing, and that's something I, I teach and consult across the world, never feel embarrassed by asking. I mean, the first and, and last lesson we teach in fundraising is all you have to do is ask. I mean, what the worst can happen? They'll say no, and then you ask somebody else. Because when I work with CEOs, with chairmen and chairwomen of, of different NGOs, it's very often that people feel embarrassed about asking. And we'll get to that point later. So that was the first time. And uh, I became what some people might argue the expert in Israel about fundraising when I started doing it full time. I already came back from the United States. I did my master's at Harvard in Middle East studies, learned Arabic, and uh, worked at Fidelity Investment, which is a, a large mutual fund company based in Boston and came back to Israel. And uh, somehow I found myself vice president of fundraising for a college in the northern part of Israel, Tel High College. So I was not experienced fundraiser then. So what do people do when they want to learn what others already learned? They look for a book. That's what I do in everything I do. Now they go to websites and stuff. But back then I looked for a book. And I was told there is no book on fundraising in Hebrew, in Israel. I couldn't believe because those of you who knows my faith, the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion, knows that fundraising was mentioned in the first book of the Bible. In the very early stage of the Bible, it's talked about fundraising in order to bring the temple. So I said, how come in the Jewish land, there's no book about fundraising? And I checked and I asked and I researched. And after I realized there is no book, I decided to write it myself. And for seven years, anyone knows the Bible here, by the way, the Old Testament? Are you guys, any people who read it? So seven years is, is a symbolic time, symbolic amount of years in, in the, the Bible. Uh, Jacob worked seven years for his first wife and seven years for his second wife, you know, 14 years together. So I worked seven years to write the book secretly. And those of you in project manage, management can appreciate what's first to market is. I wanted to be first to market because so many people told me 
They have a dream to write a book. They want to, to write a book. They, took they take notes. So one day when they retire, they write a book. I said, I want to be the first to market. So two years I spent on writing the table of contents and then five years on writing the book. And only when I was ready to start interviewing people for the final stage, I told people the book is almost done. It came about five years ago, got a lot of attention because it was the first book on fundraising. And it became the, the Bible, quote unquote, of this field, of this area in Israel. Many people write to me, you know, I'm on the, my plane to, re, to, to Sao Paulo in, in Brazil, writing your book for the third time, preparing for meeting with, with supporters. I'm reading it because I'm about to do a presentation. So, you know, you, you, this, is, this is my Bible. People write to me all the time. And uh, after about three years, about three years ago, I decided it should be translated to English because everybody told me we want to read it. Not everybody reads Hebrew. So we started the process of translation and also of adaptations. Uh, you guys know probably from, uh, from high tech, from industry, that when you, when you translate a manual to a product, it's not just translation. You have to adapt it to the, to the language and to the culture of the, of the clients who are going to use it. So we adapted the book to international clients. And uh, we were about ready to publish in about two years ago or 18 months ago. And what came in early 2020, when the book was almost ready, COVID, pandemic hit the world. And the publisher and myself, we told each other, how can we publish a book about fundraising without addressing once in a, in a generation's pandemic that influenced all the economy, all the industry, all the social fabrics of the world? So I took a step back and for about six months interviewed people all around the world, uh, uh, philanthropists and NGO leaders, CEOs, chair people, and uh, donors and fundraisers. What makes fundraising during a crisis unique? Or in other words, how do you do fundraising during crisis? And if I may, Leila, because I want to stop here and if there's any question, if I may, I want to go towards the end of this conversation and share some of the lessons on fundraising during crisis, because I believe it's relevant not just for fundraising, it's relevant for every field and every industry and anything you guys are doing. So I want to take a little break, Leila, give you a chance to ask uh, or, or to direct the conversation. And then I want to share with you also, why do people give? Because I get that questions all the time. Why do people give money if they don't get a product in return, anything physical in return? Back to you, Lela. Amazing, amazing introduction. And thank you for all these uh, insights. It is very interesting how the history has developed and why you are in this uh, fundraising uh, uh, writing as well as being a consultant. So the first question as a project manager, I considered when we talked about our sessions, the first question was that fundraising and project management, what is the connection? So I consider every fundraiser as a project manager, because this is the process which has started and end, and it is always unique. Even if you reach the same uh, donor, the same uh, um, uh, investor, it's still always the same. So the first question probably will be, what makes a good fundraiser, good project fundraising project manager? Excellent, excellent question. By the way, a big chapter in the book is what makes a good fundraiser and how do you find good fundraisers and how do you retain them? How do you keep them? And when I finished writing this chapter, I sent it to the number one headhunter in Israel. I told her, this is the draft. Please criticize it. Please review. Please give me a feedback. And after a few weeks, she sent it back to me and said, Sagi, I couldn't write it any better. I mean, I, I sign off on everything that that uh, uh, you wrote because, you know, for lawyers, for engineers, for accountants, these are fields that most people understand, most people know. If you're a CEO of a company, 
Most people know what the lawyer is supposed to do, the accountant is supposed to do. Fundraising is, is a more unknown territory for so many leaders of organizations. So, uh, and as you guys know, the most important thing of, of a CEO, of, of a manager is to hire, keep and energize and motivate the best people. If you have good people who are motivated, who are uh, trying to do their best, you're, you're good, you know, good results will come. If you don't hire good people or if your people are not motivated or they look for other jobs, etc., then no matter how good you are, you're not gonna succeed. So coming back to your question, I, I wanna share a screen. As you can see on my title, it's Fundraising Sensei. So I combine the word of martial arts and fundraising. You guys see that photo? I hope, can you see it? Yes, we can yeah. see. Okay, so just take a look of that photo. And if you haven't seen the movie Karate Kid, you guys should go back and rent it and find it. There are series of them. This is number one. It's the best and most educational also for your kids, a book on fundraising. Oh, and on karate, I'm sorry. Uh, and the lesson I want to take here is not about karate. The lesson is about do things the right way. Because the lesson that uh, is, is demonstrated in, in the senseis, Sensei Miyagi in, in, in the movie, who is teaching the young kid martial arts, the young kid thinks he's going to teach him big jumps, big kicks, fancy things, how to kill somebody. But they spend the first few weeks just washing, washing cars. And he goes, do it the right way. Do it slowly, one way, and then the other way. And they practice doing things the right way. So I want to take you through a formula or a process that I developed over years called the 10 principles of building and upgrading fundraising operation that answers, you know, how do you manage and what's between project management and, and the fundraising. The first thing is decide that you want to do fundraising. I mean, those of you who might be volunteers in organizations or, or play leadership position in organizations, sometimes there are areas you don't want to do. You know, it's more comfortable to stay in your comfort zone than to go ask people for money. I had a, a consulting session two days ago with a CEO, a lady CEO, who's very accomplished. But after an hour, I told her, listen, I'm here, but you have to decide, do you really want to do it? Do you really want to ask people for money or, or you feel embarrassed? You feel it's not something you want to put to your time in. So first thing, decide. Decide that you want to invest yourself and your people and the effort and the money. Also, you guys have to pay for that. Second is identify what makes you special. I mean, every serious company, no matter what industry you're in, ask, what do we do special? What do we do best? What differentiates us? What is our, our edge? What do we do different than the competition? I mean, take it to, to the cell phones industry. What does Apple, what, what does iPhone, what does Apple do better than Samsung? What did Nokia do that made them lose the, 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 the edge? So first, why are you special? Because if you're an organization that does uh, helps children with special needs, for instance. You know, in our country, I can probably count 80 organizations who work with children with special needs. So why are you special? Why should somebody give you and not give somebody else? And it it's sounds like easy exercise, but it's very challenging. Number three is design and, and also be able to tell your vision. What is your vision for your organization? When I'm asked to define what fundraising is, I say it's a outlining, envisioning, a vision, a dream, a plan, a better future, and then convincing and convening people to accomplish it. It's not just about asking for money. It's about outlining a dream and getting people 
motivated to help you do that because they don't have to. I mean, you don't sell them anything they need. You don't sell them bread or electricity. You sell them a dream. You sell them a vision. You make them want to change the world for the better with you. Number four, and again, it's the same for every industry. What are the assets you have? Assets can be physical, buildings, for instance. Assets could be reputation and a logo or, or, or a brand. If you have a good brand, for instance, let me give you an example from a different world. I'm the president of the Harvard Club of Israel. We have about 1,400 alumni in Israel, which is a lot for a small country of, of 9 million people. I don't have a budget. I don't have people work for me. We are all volunteers. All the board is volunteers. I mean, some of the alumni are the top people, like the, the current chief of staff is a Harvard alumni. The former um, minister of finance is a Harvard alumni, etc. But we don't have any physical means. What we do have, and that's what I'm trying to leverage all the time, we have a brand. We probably have the best brand in the world. I, I'm ready to go to the mat with Apple, with Nike, with Coca-Cola, about the quality of the brand. Harvard University, everybody knows Harvard, everybody wants to be associated with Harvard. So when I'm looking for venue to have an event, which I'm having next week, for instance, for a delegation coming from you know, a different country, I got a law firm, one of the leading law firms in Israel, to sponsor the whole event, including food, including the PR and everything. Why? Because they feel privileged and they feel it's good for the interest to be associated with Harvard University. So that's a brand and it's true for everybody. Not every organization have the Harvard brand, but every organization have a uniqueness, have an asset. Another asset is the people. If you have 2000 volunteers on, on your Rolodex, on your list of, of uh, uh, volunteers, that's a big asset, and how do you use them? So define your assets and base your fundraising on assets, not on problems, because so many organizations tend to emphasize what's bad, what's weak, what, what problems do they have to face? I say, yes, you, you are facing trouble and problems and everything, but focus on the assets because people want to be part of a success, successful story, not a story of failures. Number five is uh, why do you need money? When you go raise money, you have to ask yourself and then tell people, why do you need? It's not enough to say I need $100,000. I said, you know, if you're a hospital, you need machinery, you need a, a training, you need doctors. If you're a school, you need new programs, you need a building. Each organization has different needs and you have to go in details and develop a budget and timeline and uh, one of the things I do, you guys are probably better experts than I am, is how do you write a project proposal? You know, it's nice you have a plan, nice you, you want to do something, but what are the goals? What are the timetable? What's the budget? How do you evaluate success, etc.? Not going to go to that because you guys leave it on a daily basis. And if, if you have questions, I'd be happy to address. Number six is train. And this is, uh, Lela, I'm saluting you. This is what you guys are doing right now. You're training your people. You give them options of, of getting better in, in areas that they need. And when you manage an organization, I say always train your people. If you go to my website, sagimelamed.com, sagimelamed, one word, .com, you see on the, on the front page, even the best fundraiser needs a sensei. Namely, even the, be the best fundraiser that, that there is in the world, much better than I can offer. Everybody can improve. Everybody can learn something new. I had the great privilege to study at Harvard University negotiation, the art of negotiation, with the professor who invented negotiation as a studied profession. You can Google him, Professor Roger Fisher from Harvard Law School. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. And I was really fortunate and privileged to not just be his student, but also research assistant, to work very closely with him. And every time in, during classes, he, he used to tell us all these negotiation stories. I made peace between these countries. I negotiated deals with these big corporations. 
And every time some, some other student will ask him, Professor Fisher, can you really learn negotiation? Or you're just born with, with the skill? Can you get better in it? Or, you, or you're either born good or bad? And I use his answer as my mantra. He used to say, even the best tennis player, which I don't know who's now the best. I knew that. Who's the best tennis player? Always have to train. The best basketball player, LeBron James, uh, Steph Curry, that they do know. Train every day. So even if you're very good, you can always get better. And even if you're not that good, I'm very mediocre basketball player, but I could get better. I was never a karate, you know, expert, but I trained, I enjoyed the training and I got better as I trained more. So if, even if you're great, you can get better. Even if you're not good, you can get better. So train your people, give them the tools they need to succeed in their tasks. And number uh, seven and eight, I'll combine them, is build the friends of the organization. No one can win the war alone, even if he's the best commander. No one could build an amazing project or an amazing great company alone. People need others to do these things with them. So even if you're a wonderful organization with amazing em employees and everybody's motivated, always look for the volunteers, for the friends, for the partners to do that with you and leverage it. Have them help you. Give them assignments. Because in fundraising, as an example, a lot of, a lot of successful fundraising is done by volunteers. So for instance, let's say I'm a school principal. So I have 1,000 students, 1,000, you know, from, a, from age 8 to 18. I have parents of 1,000 students. I have alumni who went to my school and now went to do their career. Each one of them is a potential partner in building your fundraising capacity. And I can go in details more. But I want to move to the last two. Number nine, and it's very relevant in project management, is build a work plan, plan, plan in advance. Don't just go with the flow and whatever happens, happens. I mean, granted, at the end, whatever God wants us to do and whatever God wants to happen will happen. But we also have our responsibility here. We say in Israel that God helps those who help themselves. Have a plan. However, at the same time, always be tentative and, and, and listen and be carefully sensitive to the opportunities. There's a saying that opportunity sometimes knocks on the door very, very softly. And you have to be very attentive and carefully listen to hear the opportunity. So while you have a plan, always be ready to change the plan according to opportunities you arise. I mean, people ask me, you know, what should I do before I go abroad to ask for money? I say, we well, have to plan, you have to make meetings, you have to uh, prepare materials and everything that goes with it. However, let's say, let's go extreme. Let's go with a fantasy. Let's say I'm getting an email tomorrow from Bill Gates. He said, Mr. Melamed, I heard about your book, uh, Fundraising. And I heard about uh, that you're a very good fundraising consultant and that you're a leader of some organizations. Uh, would you mind coming to Seattle to share with me some of the projects that you are developing? Because I'm in a good mood to give a lot of money and I thought about you. Okay, we are going extreme here. I say drop everything, catch the first plane you can and go meet with Mr. Gates. So this is, this is an opportunity. I mean, it doesn't happen often, this kind, but I can give you personal stories, real stories of many things that did happen to me when an opportunity presented itself, I seized it and it ended up in very large donations. And that's sort of everything. I mean, I, I'm sure if I give you guys the chance to share from your, from your perspective, from your experience, you can tell me a lot of opportunities that you didn't plan, 
they came about and they ended up in, in the best ways that you couldn't even imagine. But the last thing that's very unique and it's not defined, it's personal. I said the 10th principle, the most important principle is your own secret, your own secret sauce, because everybody have their own passion, their own skills, their own ways of doing things. I happen to use martial arts often in what I do, not only, but often. And I wanted to show you and tell you a story and then to show you a 10 second video. I have a friend uh, who, who who's a partner in a very large foundation. And uh, he challenged me. He came to the organization I was working for and he challenged me. He said, Sagi, if you do 100 push-ups, I will help you get a, a very large donation. So for two years, I trained. I trained on push-ups because I was injured then. I wasn't in best shape for two years. And then I called him to the office and did this. And he ended up helping us get the seven figures in dollars, seven figures gift, very large one. And, you know, promises needs to be fulfilled. He promised, I promised, and we both fulfilled the promises. So it doesn't say that every time you do 100 push-ups, you get $2 million gift. It doesn't say that every $2 million require 100 push-ups. But that's something special, and I have other examples. Maybe next time I'm going to share with you more. Always look for what you do best, for what's your secret, for what's your passion. It could be, can be cooking. It could be playing music. It could be, you know, chess. You name it. But what, what can you do? What can you do different? Because at the end of the day, remember that for every organization who tries to raise money from people, there are 10,000 other organizations who also try to raise money from the same people. So you have to look for the, for the uh, extra mile. You have to look for what can you do different that will give you the edge. So let me stop here and get back and give it back to you, Lela. Thank you. Thank you, Sag. It was so interesting and so well uh, concisely laid down. Uh, before I jump to the next question, I would like to uh, put the poll for everybody. Just quick poll. So you are, uh, we have a, like interaction here as well. Um, uh, so uh, when you were talking about the volunteering, it's really recognized with me uh, because I am a project management institute founder and president, and we have the organization as a volunteers. Myself, I am volunteer. And actually we worked with partners before pandemic. It was really uh, my and board of directors job to talk with those who believe in project management, who believe in uh, the, uh, the success of the methodology and efficiency uh, of project management while you are using the methodology. So it is uh, recognizing with me so well that uh, I really understand how, how you are saying it. So um, the question which uh, actually I see lots of participants from the different sectors and what really uh, uh, like a uh, question which I want to ask, how different is the uh, fundraising strategy? Uh, first of all, you lay down that we need strategy and we need plan and we need the proposal and so on. What is the difference between fundraising strategy for the commercial and, and uh, NGOs? What is the main difference there? It's a, it's a good question, and I'm often asked, you know, what's the difference between fundraising for venture capital, you know, fund, or, or for an or NGO, for organization. So there are similarities and there are differences. Let me just close the poll here. We can see you. The similarities, let's, let's start with the similarities. 
those of you who either are in venture capital or knows VC people, what is the first and most important thing that VC managers look at when they come to evaluate new projects, new, new ideas, uh, new startups? I mean, you know, Israel is the startup nation. We, we live it on a daily basis. So I see David said passion and team. Great. David said, you guys, uh, it, it's about the people. First, it's about the team. And uh, I heard so many times from, from VC guys, they see first, I want to see who are the people. Are they ready to go the extra mile to succeed? That's what David said, the passion. Are they really passionate? And are they skillful? I mean, ideas, I can walk in the streets of Tel Aviv for one hour and come with 20 good ideas for startup. Okay, there are ideas like the sand on the, on the sea. But people who have good ideas and are able to go through the difficulties, the challenges, the ups and downs of making an idea become a company, that I will have to walk a whole week and find one. So the notion about the people is very similar. One of the principles of fundraising is why what, what are the reasons that people give to specific organizations? So there are different reasons. It could be the cause, people passionate about the cause. It could be people who uh, tax purposes. It could be people who, who enjoy giving. There are different reasons. But from all the experience, from all the surveys and, and the seminars I've done, the most important reason when a philanthropist, somebody with resources, chooses an organization is because who asks? Because of the person, because of the relationship with the person who leads the organization or leads the fundraising for the organization, the trust, the belief, the confidence. So that's a very, very similar uh, notion. And, and that's why uh, we have a saying in, 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 is, in Israel, in Judaism, that good name is more important than good oil. Namely, your reputation is a resource or, or a, something that you should nurture and keep and not jeopardize because without your reputation, you are nothing. I tell people in, in, our, in our business, in, in, in the art of in business of fundraising, they offer often uh, temptations. You know, you meet with people with a, with a lot of money. You sometimes there are ways that you think you can do shortcuts. But I tell people if you use if you lose your reputation, you can't do anything of that. No one is going to talk to you. And uh, it's the same in business. I mean, if if somebody has the reputation of a cheater, of of a liar, of of, of a creep, who would like to do business with that person, even if he has good product? So that's something that is, is the same on both sides. One thing that is not the same is what are you selling? And when you come to, if you're a marketing or sales guy, a salesperson, you know, you have to think what, what is the, the product that you're selling? You're selling computers, you're selling food, you're selling services. You know, I sell consulting services. I sell my expertise. Some people ask me, for instance, Sagi, why do you charge so much per hour? You know, if, if I was a lawyer, it wouldn't be much. But when it's for NGOs, they think it's a lot of money, my, my fee, my hourly fee. So I say, I don't, I don't sell you hours. I sell you expertise. I sell you 20-something years of experience. I sell you the best education. I sell you... So I sell you the opportunity that I offer you to save money and save time and, and, and not do mistakes that you would do if you go on your own. That's what I'm selling. So defining what's your product is very important. When you fundraise, you fundraise for museum, you fundraise for hospital, you find out for, for school, university. What are you selling? I mean, the, the donor... If I give a million dollars to university, what do I get in return? The most I get in return is my name on a building. 
sometimes some people want access. So in, in the world of hospitals, for instance, I learned over the years, many people like to be associated with hospitals, to be on the board of directors of hospitals. Why? Because in a way, it's like insurance. You know, God forbid, you have to have a, a operation, you get sick, your, your family gets sick. When you're one of the major donors of hospitals, there's a good chance, no one will admit it, no one would write it, but there's a good chance that you will have to wait less than the regular people in order to get to the best uh, doctor. So that's a reason. But the biggest reason, and that's what I like to emphasize in philanthropy, the biggest reason that people give money is to do good. And that brings me to COVID, to the times of COVID. I wanted to share with you in very brief what happened. What happened during 2020 and the beginning of 21? I don't know each one of you where you were when, that, when COVID broke, when, when the pandemic, when everybody was in, in, in closure. Some of us thought the world is, is ending. I mean, this was not something small. Let's not underestimate what all of us went through. So in the beginning of my remarks, I told you that I stopped on the publication process of the book and decided to write a chapter on fundraising during crisis and interviewed people and held seminars between NGO leaders and philanthropists from different parts of the world. And the main lesson I, le I learned from that is one, that during crisis, big crisis, and in our country, we have different crises every other year. We are not short of crises. Yeah? People want to be part of the solution. People want not just to sit down and watch the problem on TV. People want to, to be part of the solution. Somebody told me that 20 years from now, he doesn't want to be asked by his grandkids, uh, Grandpa, what did you do in 2021 when the big pandemic happened? He didn't want to say, well, I hide in my summer home and waited for everything to get better. He wanted to be able to tell his grandkids, I helped here, I gave money there, I gave advice, I, you know, we did brainstorming. I was part of the solution. So many people told me that. So that's one. The second is a problem, a challenge, a crisis, it's opportunity. Let me give you examples from two hospitals in Israel. When the, big, the height of, of the pandemic, people were pouring money on hospitals. I know rich people were just calling hospitals, what do you need, what do you need, and sending money without asking all the questions that usually people ask when they ask to give money. So I'll give you an example of two different hospitals. One hospital said, we get so much money, we don't even ask. Why should we invest in fundraising? We just get easy money. Let's do what we're good at, namely take care of patients. And after the pandemic sort of eased and people gave a lot of money and, and they went back to their regular life, this hospital was, came back to where they were two years before in terms of fundraising. No capacity was built. No new relationship were developed. And the, the numbers, they went up during 2020, and then they went back to where they were. However, a different hospital, the CEO was smart. He realized, I have an opportunity here. So when people were calling, were pouring money, he used that to build relationship with them and follow up and update them what was done with the money. And he would call that lady and say, when things get better, come visit us and uh, let's see what we can do together and share these dreams with them and, and build databases of all the people who expressed interest and gave, even if they gave $100, they still put them in the database and more and more, et cetera. So guess how the fundraising of that hospital went in 21. They went up in 2020, like all the other hospitals, but in 21, it continued to go up because they invested in the infrastructure. So the pandemic, the crisis was a, was a test for many leaders of NGOs and corporations, commercial companies. I mean, some companies went down, some companies, they went nuts. Look at the stock market. I don't know how it is in Georgia, but, but in Israel and in the United States, the stock market went up 
big time. And, and last but not least, I have a few, but I want to emphasize on that. I held different seminars and webinars during the height of, of the crisis with fundraisers and, and CEOs who, who needed advice, who, who were, you know, everything was uncertainty, everything was unknown. And I told them that in 2008, those of you who remember 2008, the banks collapsed in the, in the United States overnight. Banks and then companies were erased. Wealth of hundreds of millions of dollars of foundation was erased overnight. And people felt that maybe the economy is going into a huge recession from now on. But only about a year later, the world economy picked up and then started a whole new rise, economic rise in, in the Western world. So I kept reminding people last year, I said, look at 2008, after the darkest hour of the night comes the sun. And things change. And what's today is bad, tomorrow will be different. We don't know if tomorrow will be two days from now or two months from now and maybe two years from now, but things change. I practice meditation every day. It's part of what helps me focus and, and be creative. There's, this, there's a term in, in Buddhist, Buddhism meditation called anicca. Anicca means things change all the time. I mean, you look at the tree, it's not the same tree. Now it's one tree, Next minute, it's a different tree. You look at the sky, they change all the time. Now it's raining, then it's shining. Now it's windy, then it's less windy. Things change. So when you're in a crisis, focus on now. Don't torture yourself that it's going to be bad forever. Focus on now. Know that things will change. Things will get better. And when you look now, I mean, we're not that far away. The pandemic is still here. But look at the economy, look how mankind managed to deal with this new reality. And the optimism, the confidence, it's so important to leaders, leaders of companies, leaders of NGO, political leaders, every leader, because people look at you, people ex expect you to give them direction, to give them answers. So you have to keep yourself calm, you have to keep yourself focused, you have to keep yourself confident in order to help others. Lela, back to you. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, it's so interesting, but I think one of the questions, we talk about strategies, we uh, talk about what makes good fundraiser, a good successful fundraiser, uh, and we talk the, about uh, the, the 10 steps, yeah, the 10 tips that we need to consider where to find the fundraising there is any uh platform or any group or any space where you will go and see or connect those who would like to uh, uh, give uh, invest grants or donate or uh, be a investor or uh, is there any platform where we can find it this information Okay, you're asking a big question. I'm going to give you some directions. Mm -hmm. First, if, uh, if there is a group of people who are doing fundraising or want to do fundraising, it will be my honor to continue that conversation and create a team and create a group. Second, as I started, uh, I am looking for an opportunity to go to your country, do sightseeing, and also contribute on a professional level. Now coming back to the general answer. Oh, and I forgot to mention, if you haven't ordered my book from Amazon, please mm -hmm. do not hesitate to do it before you go to sleep tonight. I, I just, I, I told you I did, and I read before the interview with you and actually made the sum of quotes are just brilliant. And they go with, uh, probably with a uh, long way with me. They, they are so good and very practical advices. Thank you, Leila. Thank you for your kind feedback. And again, it's an it's a inexpensive way to make this, this Torah, this, this, the, the insight, the lesson accessible to everybody. You know, it's a consulting hours could be expensive to some people, but the book is something everybody could, could read. 
But coming back to your question, uh, let's, let's differentiate between the skills, the ability. What do you do? You know, how do you do fundraising? How do you, be, how do you prepare your project proposal? How do you pre- prepare your marketing materials? How do you uh, do a work plan? How do you host people who come to visit you? And how do you talk to them? How do you build a narrative? How do you tell the story in a compelling, exciting way? This is one thing. This is what I do with, with NGOs. I build capacity, fundraising capacity. You're asking, I think, where can you find the potential donors? Where can you find people who could give to your organization? So, A, there are databases. You know, there are databases. Some of them are for fee. You know, there's one in Israel called Atlas that lists all kinds of foundations and donors and updates it and who are the board members who do they give to? That's one I recommend. In Israel, it's one of the few. In the United States, there are few. There are foundation center, I believe. There are different ones who, who give you much more information than you actually need you know, on, on who gives and what do they give to. Having said that, I want to emphasize and, and warn you that having a list of wealthy people is not enough and could be even a little bit deceiving because in today's world, when there's so much information out there, it's, it's easy. You go into Fortune, Fortune magazine or Fortune website, you take the list of the richest people in the world, and then what? You start sending letters to Jeff Bezos and, and, and Mark Zuckerberg and, and Melinda Gates and, and, and those people, you know, Good luck. It's, it's inexpensive to send emails, but I wouldn't bet on the, that the, these emails will provide you with results. So what's more important than lists of rich people or foundation is how do you get their attention? How do you get in front of them? And again, it's a long lecture, but I'll give you the bottom line. The bottom line is through, or oh, two, two bottom lines. One is through people. For instance, uh, let's take the fantasy, Melinda Gates. If there's somebody who's in Georgia who she already knows, supports, listens to, communicates with, and that person could be your, your messenger, your testifier, and make the connection. Uh, Mrs. Gates, would you mind spending 10 minutes Zoom call with my friend you know, and hear about this amazing, groundbreaking organization that she started? That's a huge thing. So, but without that, you will not pay attention. At the same time, I urge you, I advise you not to think about Melinda Gates. Think about people and companies around you. Companies, for instance, and uh, I'm less familiar with how it works in Georgia, but uh, in Israel, in Europe, in, in Britain, in uh, in United States and Canada, it's it's not just uh, encouraged, but it's expected of companies to give back to the community, to do good to the community where they where they operate, where their workers come from, where their products go. So think about people of means and companies with means and maybe foundations that are in your area. That would, when you talk about your school, they would know where the school is. They might have a, a, a child who went to that school. I have a client who is a school for, for youth with, a, with a, a learning disability. They graduate about 50 people, 50 high school graduates every year. Out of those 50 families who their son or daughter got a better education, they changed their life for the good. Out of, of the, those 50 people, there's always one, two, three, four, People with means. So these are potential donors because they know about you. They care about you. They realize the good that you do. So in short, look, don't look so, so far. If you're in Tbilisi, don't look to Seattle. Look to your city and your region and your people and your neighbors. Now, there might not be people that worth $80 billion, but I'm sure there are people who could give $1,000 or $10,000. And start there. And once you build, 
you will see how the one who gave you $10,000 from your own community might be able to connect you to the other one who can give you 50,000 and then to different cultures, etc. Uh, I'll stop here, but it, it, it's a whole seminar on how do you get to, to people? How do you collect information about them so you come prepared? How do you prepare yourself to tell them the story? How do you follow up? Because often people fail in the follow-up and, uh, and, and how at the end of the day, even a small organization can build a, a circle of friends around the world over time. It doesn't happen in a month. Back so to you. Have, so it ha you have to nurture the relationship and, uh, and this is the art of relationship and it's not only science, the fundraising as your book says. Um, I'm, I'm really, really happy that we had this session because uh, on this session we have, I see the attendees from small and medium enterprises and businesses, and I know they are looking for the investors uh, around to expand their businesses. So your advice is, I'm sure, will be very helpful to that to, to them. So they have to plan and do the project proposals as we, as you said earlier, uh, well thought and well structured. So. Uh, actually, we are almost up to one hour. And if there are any questions from the from the audience, you are welcome. We have three more minutes left. Uh, so, as a, uh, uh, if you have any closing remarks, Sagi, feel free to say. Uh, but uh, before we go to the closing remarks, uh, Georgia is waiting for you. I mentioned earlier that I'll be happy to host you here. And if there are any one-on-one -on -one or individual consulting required for the fundraising, we can arrange this. We can arrange the workshop that you did and was very successful in United States recently. So we are open uh, to the further discussions, but the, the invitation is valid and we're waiting for you in Georgia. Thank you very much. I look forward, hopefully in the spring when the weather is good, we go and do good things together. You'll, you'll teach me then. <laughs> uh, great. So we have the questions, couple questions. So how to talk with the potential organization? Do you have any type of script? Uh, that's Gyogi. Yeah. Yeah. Yogi, I, I do not believe in script. I believe in your own script. What I do is my clients, I help them build their own special, exciting, meaningful narrative and story that is always begin with the person. So if I'm a leader of an organization or a company, by the way, I will always start with my own story. Why do I do what I do? How did I create that? What are my dreams? What are my passions? Give a story of somebody who, who you helped with. So there's no script. When I get phone calls from organizations who ask for money and don't know who I am and, and just go over the script, I get annoyed, I must admit. You have to build your own script. That's what I help people. I, I'll give you a story, an example. I had a client who was a, a retired diplomat, Israeli diplomat. And he asked me to help him build his script of how to raise money for the organization he was leading. And I asked him first, tell me about yourself. So he went through a script. He said, I, first I did this, then I served in the army. He was a successful officer. He went to the best universities. He, he got the best jobs. It's very competitive to go into the diplomatic corps. He went through a script and then I asked, his, I asked his permission to do a simulation, a role play. I said, let me play you. So I took his script and I told him in a different way. He sat there, his mouth open, listening to me, telling about himself. I mean, I was telling his story. He said, Sagi, wow, I sound so much better when it comes from you than when I tell my own story. So I, I help you tell your own story and it's so much more effective than just reading a script. 
Thank you. Thank you so much again. And uh, I think we are right sharp at eight. Uh, and I want to thank you, Sagi, for this very interesting and helpful conversation. Uh, and I would like to uh, invite all the attendees to our next uh, session, which is about digital transformation, and be happy to uh, share with you about the sum of human capital considerations. Um, we will be sending the actually uh, follow up mails to those who attended and registered. Thank you again, everybody, for attending, and uh, see you at the next session. Subscribe to my channels. Uh, you see my channels. So see you later. Sagi, thank you so much. Bye.